Hello and welcome to another edition of the Playlist Podcast. We apologize for our absence since the last show, which covered The Dark Knight Rises way back in June. But we're back with a chat about two films garnering a lot of heat at the Playlist. I'm your host, Eric McClanahan, and joining me today is managing editor Kevin Yegerneth and our fearless leader, Rodrigo Perez. Our slate for this week's show is as follows. The first half is our review of The Master, followed in the second half with a review of Looper. Let's close the lights, open the curtains, and fire up the projector. jumpy than you were before? No, sir. And how's your sleeping? I sleep just fine, sir. When you sleep, do you have nightmares? Not as much as before. You've had violent episodes. (laughs) Yes, sir, we all did. You pulled a knife to the throat of an officer. (laughs) Will you box that out? How would you yourself rank your overall health? Oh. What about this last episode on the way home? What episode, sir? The episode you had on the way home here. I don't, I don't remember an episode. You have no memory of what happened? <laughs> we, were, <clears throat> we were celebrating. We were drinking and dancing. I don't remember an episode. fight <laughs> what happened let's just see if we can't help you remember what happened <laughs> okay this film has been talked about a lot, especially on our site and a lot of other sites. Um, it's had a lot of, uh, you know, lead up with the Venice Film Festival, and then it played at TIFF. It's had its release dates moved around. Um, there's a lot going on with this film. There's a lot of expectations out there, and I'm just curious. We should start it off like we normally do. Um, to Kevin, let me know uh, your broad thoughts. Uh, what do you think about the film in general? Broad thoughts. Um, I really liked the film quite a bit. Um, I think a common sentiment among many is that they would like to see it again. And I think that's true in my case. I probably will go see it a second time at some point. But I do have issues with the film, which I guess we'll get into. But uh, I think it's it's certainly one of the more unique pictures to come out this year. Um, it's really masterfully assembled and haha, masterfully. Um, and for me, the real highlight of the film is really Joaquin Phoenix uh, and his performance. I think he makes the picture what it is. Yes, yes. And uh, Rod, uh, over to you. What do you think? Um, I, I I like the master. Um, I have. I don't know. I I don't love the master like everybody else does, and I I like the master. I thought it was. Um, Interesting. The performances are obviously incredible. You know, there's certain movies that are like, you know, this one, this one needs a second viewing, and um, that was my initial thought. I'm going to go see it again, but it hasn't. I don't know about you guys, but 
just to, to, to detour slightly, it's films to me, I always break down into experience versus resonance. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how I felt in the moment, and this is how I felt weeks later. And sometimes they're very drastically different. Um, and I don't know if everybody feels, uh, thinks about films in those two ways. I know a lot of, I, I've always encountered a lot of people who just like, their initial reaction is always just the reaction, and there's no, there's no ever change. But I, I would say that my, you know, a film like this generally is one of those films that makes me think a lot and and um, to the point where it becomes greater than it, than the ex- actual experience. And I don't know if that's the case with this. Um, and generally this would be the type of film that I would assume um, I would just keep lingering on and keep thinking on and, and going over in my head. And I really kind of haven't. So I'm not sure if I'm going to see it again. I don't know if that doesn't necessarily detract from it. Um, but I, I would say I'm guessing on the, on the spectrum of the three of us, I may have liked it the least, but that's pretty relative because there's lots to love about it and it's really interesting. And it, but it may be a little too, uh, we're always talking about how, well, we've often talked about in general on the site and things like that of how, you know, things that are ambiguous can be good. And I'm sometimes wondering if things can be too ambiguous to, to, to not illuminate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious, like, I don't know. I saw it a second time last night. So now I've got the two viewings in and it definitely right. works for me. It worked much better a second viewing. I really liked it the first time, but, um, there's just little nuances and things that I picked up on more the second viewing that I appreciated. But I think what I love most about this film is that it's actually pretty simple when you break it down. It's a really simple story. It's a character. It's a dual character study, which um, I think maybe we've been led to believe that there's more to it and more to dig into. And there's some things in the ending that seem ambiguous about the film or things that aren't answered, but but the no, I kind of agree with you because, you know, like the other day Vulture did this, yes. this piece. It was like, what's the, the master about? And Five interpretations I, I, or whatever. I, five interpretations. And I had two things. Like I generally do this thing on Twitter where I write my comments and then I delete them and I don't send them. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had two responses. One of them was being one a, a cheeky one that was like the, the master is about something. <laughs> and uh, I think I and, – and then – my second one was like, well, obviously wouldn't fit in 140 characters, but like, um, duh, it's about a guy who, you know, coming from World War II uh, ends up, you know, coincidentally or accidentally mixed up with these people and sort of his life gets intertwined with them and, and they feel, you know, but it's like, as you said, kind of straightforward. Yeah. And I actually kind of found that re- uh, refreshing because the film is so beautifully, I think we can all agree that the film looks amazing. I- I'm assuming you guys agree. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. It mean, looks fantastic. Yeah. And with all the hoopla over the 70 millimeter and all that, like it's kind of fascinating that he shot so much. Like this is the most close-ups I've ever seen in a Paul Thomas Anderson film. You know, it's it's made up almost entirely of close-ups. We do get, you know, some nice vistas in certain parts of the film, but like the use of close-ups was a really interesting choice to shoot a film on 60, you know, he shot on 65 and some places it's being shown in 70. Um, so that's really interesting, but yeah, I, I love that. It's just a simple story that looks so cinematic. Um, and that was really refreshing, especially after the summer where I just, I don't know, like even the big films, like the Avengers and things like they had that sort of digital feel to it. Like this, um, there's nothing like seeing something shot on film. Um, so yeah, I, I really love that about it. I think I, we probably all agree that like aesthetically, around the board there's there's nothing but like a pluses right right 
Yeah. 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 Like I mean, yes, the cinematography is amazing. Yes, the costume design, the the, the everything that Jack Fisk does, the way, it, yeah, it's just it's absolutely it's beautiful, absolutely. But yeah, I, you know, yeah, the period detail made me nostalgic for a time I've never even you know lived in, <laughs> which I which I found really really interesting. I mean, even more so than something like Mad Men. You know, I just feel like he nailed nailed the look of it and. It's it's like those uh, early on when he's a photographer when when uh, Walking Phoenix character is a photographer and you just get the the montage of children and couples getting their photos taken like there is something so right. eerie about how authentic that looks. Um, well, the interesting thing that you bring up Mad Men is, is and I think it's night and day is like Mad Men fetishizes that period and makes it cool yes. for like you know people twenty somethings to want to dress up like that. This movie doesn't do that because it's just authentic. It's just it feels lived in and I and I think that's a huge difference. You know, Mad Men makes cool yeah yeah um so kevin you said specifically you you really latched on to to joaquin phoenix's performance but what i for one i think philip seymour hoffman is almost as good he i mean they're both i feel like both these guys could be up for best actor this year i'm really curious oh, as to how that's yeah gonna go. i yeah i think they're, they're i mean i just it, for me it's just a personal preference but they're both great um you know, they both they both are just they work so well with each other. It's really, you know, I can't remember the last film that had two leads that were just this compelling and just played off each other so well um, in this film. It's just just on a pure watching a film just for acting alone. I mean, this is just it's just a great piece of performance. It's just a great piece with some great performances. Definitely, and they had great characters to, to dive into. I mean, these were complicated guys. They're you know, two people who are a lot more similar than they probably realize. They're both sort of yearning and, and hungering for some kind of meaning. And like after coming out of a pretty devastating war, um, and I think they really do some interesting things and they make some very fascinating choices. That's another really strong element for me for the film too, is that World War Two is usually talk about fetishized or just, you know, glorified in a way like the greatest generation. Like this feels this feels almost unique in the fact that this is exploring a character that, uh, you know, goes through the sort of things that we usually see um, connected with Vietnam soldiers, you know, in films. Like, he's really struggling to, to figure out what he's going to do next. I, I thought that was a really good element to the film, too. It made it feel, you know, different. Well, in terms of the performances, yeah, they're both they're both fantastic. And Joaquin's going to get more attention because it's more showy, but I agree with you, Eric, that, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman is, you know, on par. It's just Joaquin has got the more showy, and it's not even the more showy performance. It's, it's needed. His character is supposed to be like a feral kind of animal, mm-hmm. and um, to an extent. And you know, um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is, is something else. He's more of a like a he's the the wiser sort of father figure in the role, um, and um, so yeah. I mean, I, they're both terrific in it. Um, uh, it's the they're sort of how they're inextricably tied to one another. How they're sort of they, the the need for one another. How they sort of complete one another. I think is um, pretty awesome because of how it plays in so many ways. How there's like a a father son aspect to it. There's a an almost uh, a love kind of relationship, especially near the end. It sort of hints at that. I mean that that sequence is really really fantastic, where he sings "Slow Boat to China." Yeah. Um, and there's also a guinea pig aspect to it. At first, you know, um, the master, uh, you know, Dodd looks at 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 uh, as at um, Freddie. Freddie, yes, as a as a sort of like 
curious interesting experiment but then you know you know at one point uh, I think it's Amy Adams's character saying you know he's too wild maybe we should let him go and then and then you know the master basically counters and says you know if 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 we leave him we failed him and and we can't you know he there's he takes on this sort of like kind of love to him there's this sort of understanding and then there's of course the the part of it that we're like there's sort of you know and Paul Thomas Anderson has sort of hinted at him so it's weird though every time Paul Thomas Anderson and maybe because he's trying to avoid Scientology I think he's mentioned time travel yeah. as, as as the theme of the film no, no, not necessarily the theme but he mentions time travel more than almost any aspect of um, the rest of it I'm not saying that's what he's trying to hint at that's what it's about because these, that's what these people are sort of talking about in some sort of way mm-hmm. but you know that ties into that theme opaquely of the have we met each other we before I feel like we've met each other in a past life and that I feel is sort of the the sort of interesting like you know the meat underneath all all of the 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 this the superficially simple stuff that we've been talking about it's about this but you know these people are exploring these other ideas of past lives and and you know um, that's and in, in uh, what the interesting I think I, about that is that it's so even though Anderson I guess like flirts with it and touches upon it it's still really opaque and um, it's 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 only scratched at a little bit and it maybe that's why it's a little bit murky and unnerving to people because they're like it, it's interesting because it creates a lot of people to search for a lot of stuff which may or may not be there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was actually the the most interesting point, I thought, in that Vulture piece that you referenced, Rod, is mm-hmm. there is the, the mention of, at least even on a metaphorical level, that Freddy could be a version of Lancaster, you know, a previous, like what Lancaster might have been like. And I thought that was really interesting because you see these little these little moments where um, Philip Seymour Hoffman just loses his temper. And mm-hmm. it's it's like little hints at what he may have had and what he's learned to, you know to to suppress basically through his what, what, he, what he might have been when he was younger and more not as wise kind of thing exactly and i love this just there's just those little hints that anderson puts in there and and philip seymour hoffman puts in there with the performances that allows you to see that that is that's a that is enough where you could see why he would be so fascinated in freddie because if he can if he can fix this guy it's like the poster child for his you know for the cause for his thing that he's trying to 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 move right. forward yeah and i i I love that. I mean, Anderson has always had like a real faith or trust in the audience, which is so rare for an American filmmaker too, which um, mm-hmm. I really, really appreciate. Yeah. I mean, I agree. There's all this stuff. Actually, this conversation is now make me, making me want to maybe try and see it a second time. <laughs> it's worth but. it, man. Seriously. Uh, it's, it's so, so well-crafted that, I mean, just soaking it in again and living in that world for two hours again was really, really great. So, I mean, I, I have no, argument with that. I mean, having experienced it the first time, you know, I, I looked at Ollie's review and um, Charlie Schmidlin's review, yes, I believe, yes. who's the first two people who reviewed it for us. And I got to say, like, you know, I think Charlie gave it a B plus and Ollie gave it a B. And I kind of love both those reviews. They're both, um, they're both pretty generous in its, in their uh, criticisms and their um, and, and what they love about it. I think, I think they're, they're nice and fair reviews and, and they're not just like, this is the most amazing film, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of agree with both of those and I'm probably in that sort of camp somewhere, maybe. 
are, are Kevin, do you agree that Ali was it Ali that specifically cited this as being maybe a little bit too cold of a film? I think it was in his review where he cited that. Um, do Kevin, do you agree with that or? Um, to a degree. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, it doesn't really let you inside. It doesn't really let you inside, but I'm not even sure it's to the detriment if it's not necessarily a detriment because I can't yeah. say that that, no, no, kept me, be. that kept me uninvolved. You know what I mean? Right. right. I, I think that there is a, I think there is a coldness to it. Um, but it didn't bother me, I guess. I think. Right. That's also possibly by design. Yeah. yeah. Well, it yeah. feels like I, I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson's moving more towards this. There will be blood's a pretty cold, cerebral film too in a lot of moments. I mean, you have a lot of there's more entertaining moments in There Will Be Blood with just some of the lines. You know, we don't have a I drink your milkshake line in this film. We don't have that the, those sort of things to hold on to or to really to become like pop culture memes to float around. You know, we don't have that in this film. But I do think. They're both both films. There will be blood in the master. Really, are compelling to watch because the characters are just so fascinating. It's not that they're likable or that we have to agree with them, but I think Anderson just has this knack for creating um, characters that just stand out and can be. And he's also got this thing where he trusts his actors. He gets something. The performances he gets out of his actors, he's like, he'll he'll let them go really far with their performances. You know, like. You know, the, the ending of There Will Be Blood, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis pushes it really far. He goes borderline over the top in that, which I think really works. And then look at the moment in the jail scene between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix in this, where it's just Joaquin Phoenix's rage has just gone. It's let loose, you know? I love that he's willing. He 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 hones. He, it's like he's he lets his actors go for it and, like, experiment but he, uh, he, he, it just feels right for all of his films. It's just something, I don't know how he does it, but um, he must get some, some level of trust from his actors that I, I just don't see in most, most American films, you know? Yeah. I also I mean, feel like this is, um, sorry to, to cut you off, but like a continuation is sort of like, to me, Paul Thomas Anderson's career, his career is two phases, the, the early career and a new phase that started with There Will Be Blood. And I feel like this is very much a continuation of of what he started with there with be blood but pushing it obviously a lot further as you said there's like it's almost i mean there's similar kind of themes or similar ideas there's two there's two men struggling there's a there's a father figure and a and a younger person and um they're somewhat similar there's you know people of you know there's just like uh like godlike figures there's a lot of like narcissists in, in that kind of like in the in the um Daniel Day-Lewis and Philip Seymour Hoffman characters these people who believe that they're not wrong and you know causes and beliefs and, and that sort of thing um but he definitely really really pushes it with this film obviously and like strips it strips it down to just its pure elements and and I guess if I had to like someone said you know what's the the thing that you love the most is that I guess it's like how he is so confident that like that this was going to work that he that he writes a script that is so bare bones and so like you know it's there's not a lot of plot points there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of things that happens it's like this these two people and and they're their interactions and how they put the, the push and pull between them um, and the confidence for someone to see like this is what it's going to be there doesn't need to be these huge arcs it doesn't need to be plot points to, 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 to know that it'll work and then for him to execute it like that with these just actors and it's pretty bold and that's the stuff that that just makes me go like wow that's you know he 
he pulled it off, and he, he, I guess he assumed he he, he could, you know. Mm-hmm. I I think you bring up a really good point that I agree with you that 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 Anderson sort of entering a second phase um, with these films. I mean, you mean you could look at both There Will Be Blood and The Master, and it, and it's really about men who are trying to control their environment to a, mm-hmm. to a large degree, and um, you know, in this film, both Joaquin or The Master and Freddy. I mean, The Master. For me, he's he's just as lost as as Freddy is. He's just found a way that he can control whatever plagues him within mm-hmm. the formation of this cult. Um, and just going back to the coldness of the film, I mean, when we go into that last scene in London and he's in that gigantic room, I mean, I think the coldness and the size of that room and how small he is just speaks to how isolated he has become in this machine that he's created mm-hmm. to sort of control how he how, control whatever he's trying to grapple with. I, I think he's isolated himself. Um, and and the and there's a similar sense of isolation at the end of there will of uh, uh, there will be blood as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so I think yeah, I think there is definitely a lot of thematic overlap and in both films and and yeah, I think Anderson is really exploring some very different very i think much more mature themes um in these last two films it's it's interesting too is like punch drunk love seems to be a really important film right now in his career where like that was the big turn i feel where you know hard eight or sydney however you refer to it boogie nights and magnolia were very very clearly referential you know like he's clearly influenced by many filmmakers but those films sort of screamed their influences in many ways you know mm-hmm. um, i mean boogie nights is almost goodfellas in the porn industry you know it's it's like they're almost the right. same film <clears throat> yeah but then you get punch drunk love and it's just this movie that's really hard to classify i mean it's a romantic comedy but it's it has these experimental elements to it it has a really bizarre performance from adam sandler that works well i always felt and then, yeah, it just feels like that that film was the big turning point, like where he matured or he was taking a step towards a, a new phase in his career. And um, I'm loving where it's going because his films are getting harder to classify and harder to say, well, like, oh, he was, you know, influenced by this filmmaker and this scene and this and that. And um, it seems like he's really he's he's zeroing in on his his uh, his own voice, which is great to see. Um well, I think he's also telling smaller stories. I mean, Magnolia and uh, Boogie Nights, they take, pay- they take place on these sort of grand canvases where these last three films are really, you know, one or two character films. They're, they're very honed in. They're very uh, they're smaller. I mean, that's a lack of a, that's not the quite right, the right word I'm looking for, but they're much more focused maybe on. Oh yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like the fo- right there. They're, they're, they're a lot more focused. Um, in terms of character and theme and whatnot um, than his first two films. Do you guys think it's interesting or like uh, maybe you have no thoughts on this, but um, with this and there will be blood, he's, I mean, there will be blood had almost no female characters in it. And this one has some, but he's really been honing in on his last two films on just, uh, you know, like you said, focusing in on one or two specific characters and they've been specifically male stories. Um, And that's really Away, I mean, he's always focused almost every film on the the father son kind of relationship. But you know, Boogie Nights and Magnolia had just as many female characters mixed in there as well. Uh, I, I think the, I think yeah, I mean, there are there are male driven stories, but it's interesting. At least in Punch Drunk Love and The Master, the women 
are important. Oh yeah. Uh, they're maybe just not central. I mean, Amy Adams is clearly she clearly has a very strong pull on on uh, the master. Mm-hmm. And and same and and Barry Egan and and Punch Drunk Love. I mean, he's pushed around by his sisters. He he's trying to understand this woman. He's trying to understand himself in the context of this woman that he loves. Um, so I, I yeah, they're male driven, but I I think the women do play at least in those two in Punch Drunk and in The Master. They they do have an important influence on on the turns of of the male characters. The stories are also especially with you know the last two films are in many ways built around, um, you know, power, the thirst for power, um, manipulation, um, a lot of things that generally um, are associated with with men, you know? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a sort of like, you know, a greed, a lust, um, you know, that was awesome in in There Will Be Blood, the sort of the, the, the lust for oil that that turned into this lust for something much more, you know, much more ominous, you know, um, and and a lot of those things I think are just I, I think just because of the the themes that he's exploring that they just happen to be like male centric. Also, when you think of you know for just as a writer, um, you know, when he started writing the story, he started think he started writing it about his World War II. When you think about World War II, you tend to, to associate it with men. Yeah. So I I don't know if it's a conscious thing, uh, more of a just a Here's the here's what I'm writing about, and and these things sort of seem to relate more to men. With this and there will be blood. The, another similarity between the two films is they're tackling kind of grand American, uh, almost like grand American stories or in our history. There will be blood. A lot of people thought that was going to be about the origin of of the oil industry in America, but really, I and with the master as well. It's not it's not the Scientology movie. It just I love that he puts that stuff in the background, or that's like his setting. Mm-hmm. to explore really interesting character dynamics. Um, I just think it it gives the film, to for him to zero in on something specific like that, just gives it more power as opposed to being like almost a biopic element where like here is the beginning of L. Ron Hubbard's, you know, Scientology. Right. Um, I love Thankfully, that. Thankfully, that stuff has never really interested him. Exactly, exactly. Um, it just, yeah. and, and I said this, you know, way back when before I saw the – the master and I just read the script and um you know he's I think in the same way he you know the there will be blood blood he he used this the this the the novel oil as a jumping off point you know he started just adapting that straight up at first and he maybe adapted the first act and then he used it as a jumping off point for something else I think he did the same thing with um Scientology and I think he's pretty much just said that as well like you know, here's a jumping off point for me, this character, this person who did these things and explored these ideas, and then it becomes something else. You know, I'm more power to him because, A, yes, it's more interesting for the audience, and why not use something in history to explore whatever themes and ideas that you want to? Like, basically, There Will Be Blood and The Master, they both have, like, uh, like an epilogue. Um, I think in There Will Be Blood, it felt more organic, maybe. Mm-hmm. To me... The master started feeling long when that the last sequence started. The film was, for me, the film was was really sort of a really concise, focused, really powerful piece. Right up until, for me, the film should have ended on the uh, on the flats with the motorcycle riding. Like, yeah. I would have loved to see the screen, the credits start rolling as as Freddie just drives off into the <laughs> distance. You know, that, that would have been where I would have done it, but. 
it continues for another 20 minutes with England and all this stuff. And it is, that scene with the two of them is really good. And, but it, to me, it, it just sort of, it's, it feels like padding that doesn't need to be there almost. Or it feels like extra, just extra character stuff that I don't think is, it doesn't flow well for me at all. Um, hmm. But again, I need, I need to see it a second time. I need to see how it works again, or if it does or doesn't. But the first time through, it, it, the film started feeling long at that point. I feel the opposite. I feel like the that the the codas, I feel like the one in there would be blood is much less effective and more jarring. In fact, I remember that's I've only seen there will be blood once. Um, I try and sometimes not see movies twice just because I want to keep that. Like I loved that that first experience. I thought the movie is great, so I, I did. I almost didn't need to see it again, so I, I haven't. Um, but I remember at the time being like, "Whoa!" This all of a sudden there's a jarring transition, and I felt like that coda. While it ends up being awesome, the transition to get there was very, not very seamless. And know. whereas I felt this one was, um, I can understand you saying it's being long and it, it definitely feels like near sometimes in the last act, it, there's almost like three three parts where it feels like it's going to end. Like, oh, mm-hmm. is this the end? And it then doesn't end. And so I get that um, sentiment from you, like that there, there. I think there's at least three points where you're like, "Hmm, I think it's going to end now," and it doesn't. Um, but at the same time, that ending is so necessary for them to meet one more time, and for them, you know, that that sort of like, you know, it's probably a few years later, right? Like it's just yeah. like these. They are like these two magnets who, wherever they are in the universe, will be attracted to one another, find one another, whether they like it or not, you know? And I mean, the, the, was that a dream? Was it, did he really call whatever that, I mean, that's kind of pretty important to the film. So I don't think you can, um, I I don't think you, I don't think it works in the same way if you chop off that coda, um, or that epilogue and especially just the, the last scene where, um, I think Eric was sort of suggesting it as well. It's just the, you know, um, I don't know, he, you know, he's singing the song. He's also crying because he's like saying goodbye. It's like sort of like we have to end our thing here, even though I don't want to, because um, I don't know. One of you guys said this, this sort of machines built up around me now and I can't really go back to what it was. Um, but I wish I could. Um, but I but, you know, you're too much of a liability now. But sort of like those two guys will grow old. And, you know, you know, the, the bad version of this film is, you know, one of them old dying on a bed and calling the other name <laughs> up when they, on their deathbed. You know what I mean? Like, but yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that's what the movie is um, trying to say in a way that these, that, 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 and I think that's what, you know, goes beyond um, the, 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 the simple surface stuff is that, that these are souls that may have met one day or, or were somehow connected in this way that, that, sort of irrevocably changed their lives. And, and once those souls like kissed or touched or whatever it was, they just it could, could never, you know, they just, they had to be together. They were, it's just like this, like a, like a, almost a, a positive and negative that needed to be in that yeah. space, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting for them to, to find themselves once again, years later. And, and for, you know, I, 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 I felt my interpretation was like the only reason he basically says you got to go is because his wife is there. Yeah. And then, uh, that's also how I also think like, you know, it's deceptive how Amy Adams or females aren't important in that sort because in a way she's pulling all the strings, you know? 
Yeah, there's definitely a Lady um, Macbeth vibe to her, which has been cited yeah. by a lot of people, and I, I definitely yeah. saw that too. So yeah, yeah. So that's what I I kind of love about mm-hmm. that ending is that he's just sort of like, you know, kissing him goodbye in a way, and 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 it's tragic for him because he loves this uh, this soul that's that's a part of him in this way that he doesn't even understand, but he knows that it just needs to be in his life in his sphere. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I just think that's that's why it has to be there. Mm, Although uh, maybe maybe you're right in that it's late in getting there, or it's no. For me, um, it was just it was just that that push and pull dynamic had already been expressed. Yeah, I thought it had already been expressed quite well. Um, right, but they've never been that, apart. Right after that, once they got together. Uh no. Yeah. That's tr- yeah. yeah, yeah, they've been basically. He's been with him throughout once he goes on the boat. Yeah, mm-hmm. until that point. So, I think it is important that he has to come back, and they have to have mm-hmm. some like finality to to their relationship. Definitely. Um, I read a crazy theory that someone thought that Joaquin Phoenix actually dies when he rides the motorcycle off on, in the desert. <laughs> I don't. Really? I, I, yeah. I, and that everything we see after, which is why he's sort of tamed his anger at that point, like when he goes back to see Doris, the, the love of his life, and he doesn't do what we'd expect him from everything we've seen previous to that. Like he doesn't lose his temper. He's actually kind of calm and collected about it and mature. So he's made some changes, but um, he's I, still kind of he's still kind of dickish though. He, he is dickish. Like but in you know some what of I mean? the things he says, to he's the, not banging yeah, but, his head against. Yeah, the wall, he didn't. Ex- you know? He didn't. He doesn't explode or anything. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know how that's even, I mean, the, the one thing that the, uh, the person who had this theory connected it with was that he, he drives off and then the next shot is Philip Seymour Hoffman walking in the desert. It's almost like pallbearers, you know, like there's a mm-hmm. car behind them and him and his daughter are sort of slowly walking. Like why else would they do that? Unless they were just walking upon a dead body. But I don't know. I don't feel like there's enough quite there. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson makes he there's ambiguities in the film, but I don't think I just don't think there's enough there to suggest that. But I just thought it was an interesting take on the film. Um, But actually, for me, it's less satisfying because it's refreshing to see. I've I've also read some points that people made where they think the ending, nothing changes. You know, Freddie is basically the same guy still just looking to get laid all the time and, you know, all id. But he has changed at least a little bit. And he's at least knows that he's still going to have to be searching because he knows the cause is not going to work for him either. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I need that, that final 15, 20 minute coda um, as well. So I'm more with Rod on this one on, on the end. I guess the other thing is everything, like everything we're just talking about is like, I guess the, just the power of the film there's, and, and then maybe, and it's funny now I'm getting to, I'm probably contradicting myself where it's like, maybe like the ambiguity is its power. Yeah. Um, because it's just like, there's lots of cool things in here that like, uh, and I'm always against like this is my concrete theory. I don't. Yeah, me too. Like you know, like you know, I'm talking about this. You know, possibly these souls or these things. But I, I kind of like it more ambiguous. I don't want a concrete answer. I don't want it to be. Oh, it's actually about. It's actually this means this and this and this. I and I, and I kind of want to hope and and I actively think that Anderson doesn't know the answers to these things either. That that they're not meant to be spelled out. That there's some of the ideas and. I, things that he's playing around with and the hint around at the point to things that people want to, to uh, think about, that's great. But I, I'm very resistant of any kind of hardcore, this is my interpretation of this because I, I, I guess I feel like that defeats the point. And I, and I 
think you would ask him, he'd probably say the same, but I don't know. Yeah, he's said that in interviews. He's been very, uh, and it doesn't seem like he's just being cheeky or coy, you know, just for the sake of it. Like he, he just, he, he always says when he's writing, he, the characters sort of like lead him at, at a certain <laughs> point. He knows he's on to something good when the characters are kind of, you know, th- he, they're writing their own story and he's just, he's like putting it down, you know, he's transcribing right. it basically. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that's the case. He just, these characters come to him and from there, he's just going to see where it goes. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, that, I think that's another thing that just makes him stand out amongst so many filmmakers out there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who else would have made this film aside from like, uh, this yeah, is also my, know. Well, aside from foreign film makers who are probably making, who are making films like this all the time, mm-hmm. that's the, my only small little beef that I have. But I, I can't, shouldn't, and I don't hold against the film. But like, you know, this film has been heralded by. My, I guess my issue is is it's like that line, you know, it's not the band I hate, it's the fans. <laughs> my 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 main issue is that there's a lot of people who love this film who don't watch cinema like this. Yeah, and um. I won't name names, <laughs> but I, I know a lot of people who are like, wow, you know, and they, they, and I know them and they don't care for cinema like this and they don't watch stuff like this. And they like, you know, it, I guess on a, no, no one's doing this on an American mainstream level. Yes. And so, and that's for sure. We have to acknowledge that, but there are plenty of other filmmakers in the world, um, who are doing, you know, Joe, however you pronounce his last name, act, act upon. Oh, oh Patch upon we asked at the call. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, filmmakers like that who are doing interesting, opaque, ambiguous, strange, wonderful works as well that don't get the same acclaim because they're not by this guy who, you know, came to fame by being a younger Scorsese or something. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's and, no ghost monkeys in this film, man. That's for right. Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's oranges and apples to an extent, but I guess that's probably one of my small issues on the outside is that people heralding this film for being some sort of, you know, ghostly, strange, weird experience. And because, and, and some, on some level, I don't know if those people have seen other films to just buy it. You know what I mean? Like there's Bellatar yeah, I mean, or just like people who are doing, who have been doing for a long, long time. Uh, equally strange and wonderful films, and and I, I not that I'm holding against it for that, but I just felt I should mention it. Time travel has not yet been invented, but 30 years from now, it will have been. I am one of many specialized assassins in our present, called Loopers. So when criminal organizations in the future need someone gone, they zap them back to me. And I eliminate the target from the future. Oh la la. Loopers are well paid. We live the good life. And the only rule is, never let your target escape. Even if your target is you. Speaking of time travel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's a theme, I guess. Uh, Looper, the the new film from writer-director Ryan Johnson, um, opened just this last weekend. Uh, I'm going to be really curious to see how this film does. I, for one, hope it does really well. But um, uh, just jumping into it, what what do you guys think? Uh, let's start with Kevin. What do you what do you think about Looper? Uh, I, I, I really liked it quite a bit. Um, 
Uh, I think I said in my re review, it's it's uh, Ryan Johnson's um, prestige before he does his Inception. I think he really, this is him really elevating himself as a, he's really stepping into sort of, um, into sort of the, into becoming a blockbuster director. Um, but not just like any other Hollywood guy who can do special effects and, and spectacle. I think yeah, he's, there's you some interest. in kind of way. Sorry? You yeah, mean it, I, I mean in a Nolan kind of way, yeah. Right, but let's not, like, blockbuster connotes, like, he's turning into Michael Bay or something. No, no, <laughs> I, I mean I mean a guy who, who's bringing actual ideas and, and, you know, some narrative challenges and is trying to do something creative um, and muscular at the same time. Uh, and I think he does it here. I, I think Looper is, it, it's really inventive, it's really compelling it's really you know when i watched it i was pulled in from the start right away um i i just think it's it's a smart film i think it i think it's a real accomplishment from ryan johnson definitely definitely rod what do you think um i didn't love looper ah um i will preface it by saying i think ryan johnson is awesome he also seems like one of the nicest people in the film industry mm -hmm. um i also will constantly root, root for Ryan Johnson because he's creating original stories and he's that's he's done three movies that have been three original stories and it seems like from everything his interviews have indicated is that, that he wants to, why would he do a comic book movie or an adaptation of a book when he can create his own stories and he has this ability to create this own, like people give him paychecks to create um, original stories so he's going to keep doing that for as long as he can until something goes wrong and then he's forced to do an adaptation or something. He's essentially said that and I love that about him. Um, so he, I will always root for him but um, Looper, I mean I didn't mind Looper I mean I'm not going to give it uh, you know uh, an, an A area grade but there were things, a lot of things that didn't work for me um, I guess to the core of what they are feel like Looper's two movies in one. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but there's the, you know, Blade Runner-ish um, time travel story with um, uh, Bruce Willis and George Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then there's a second half, which is this witness meets, you know, this kid. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. it's, it's very influenced by witness. You know, yeah, I mean, I never thought it. about it, but you're right. Yeah. Well, he's really said it, but it's also very true. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, not that there's and not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, so, but then there's the 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 kid the kid story. And to me, um, the first half is visually interesting and, and and interesting and whatever and and cool and whatever some great time travel ideas. But the movie doesn't really start for me until the whole reveal about the kid, yeah. and that's where like the emotional heft really comes in, and that's kind of brilliant in that that whole part of the movie. But it takes so long to get there. I think I was, I think I, because I, I think I was like, wow, and I think I actually checked, like, quickly checked my phone to see how long into the movie it was in, and I don't know how long. I think it was almost was it two and a half hours. No, I think it's no. about two hours. Yeah. It's yeah. two hours. Okay, so I think the 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 whole reveal about the kid doesn't come into about an hour and a half. So, you know, more no, than, it's not that long. Are you sure? I'm it's it's not three quarters of the film before the kid comes in. But before, before the reveal of who, who he is. Yeah, that's that's probably with like a half an hour left in the film when when we actually see what he's capable of. Exactly. Because of uh, 
Lenny is just this kid, but then when the the powers thing, and it's like, oh my god, and it, you know, this turns into this whole like, you know, it's it. He said, Ryan Johnson said in one interview, um, you know, my favorite kind of movies have always been about one thing on the surface, but when you get into them, they're much, they're about something else, and he's that's for sure because that's exactly what Looper's about. It's on this this log line is about one thing, but it's about essentially about something much more deeper and something completely different. Like the whole, you know, log line of this guy's sent to, in the past to kill his younger self or younger self to kill the older self. That's not what the movie's about. That's the, that's what gets you into the movie. But I, I guess my problem is that there's so much time spent on that. By the time you get to the kid and you get to that whole, which is to me the heart of the film, that, mm-hmm. that just arrives way too late in the film for me. And that's where the film like I felt like I was watching it and I and I remember thinking like I didn't want to wa- look at my my watch but I was thinking like this is all interesting but I'm not as fully engaged as I should be and when the kid and the whole thing that with the kid happened that's when the, like the light turned on I was like wow oh okay here we are this is some like mm. some deep material I was like wow like you know I felt like my heart palpitated at that point and that's when the movie got awesome but that was so deep into it and then it, it you know um, and and then there's like thirty, maybe forty minutes left, but I think it's really about thirty. And and so therefore, it makes the first half feel, in retrospect, pretty hollow, and the second half, or the last act, pretty awesome, but not enough. And and that's my essentially my problem with it. It's it's kind of similar to to me. It reminded me of District Nine, where it used. Um, a, a sci-fi conceit as like the setup and it's a long setup, but then ultimately what it leads to is something else, but really it's, it's a springboard for kind of an action thriller, you know, like it's not, it's not a pure time travel movie, which I, f- I found really surprising and refreshing by the time that there's this whole, there's this whole other science fiction element introduced. Right. I think that what the new intro- element that he introduces is great and is the heart and meat of the story. I just think it arrives so late. So I'm not knocking him for doing that. I think it's smart and wise. You know what I mean? Like uh, even Inception, which is about, you know, these guys, you know, trying or, you know, dream thieves. It's really about something much more deeper than that. You know, that's the surface meat to get you in. I, I think my biggest knock on the film is the the use of voiceover. But then again, it's like, which is only really used in the beginning, and then I think at the the end of the film, it just yeah. But then you think about it: how else is he gonna introduce this? You know, set up the world and introduce how like loopers work without it. It just um, I kind of wish there was another way to do it. But that's kind of my only, my biggest knock on the film is otherwise I found it all. I feel like it fits quite well because you've got the elements of um, another film, another recent indie sci-fi film moon, where it's like, what would happen if you met yourself? And it's a little bit of a different version of that in this film. But I feel like that feeds really well into the story, even when he gets to the farm with Emily Blunt and the kid and it all, it, it cohered really well for me. You know, for me, I was, like I said, I mean, I was, I was taken from the, from the start, but, but I do see Rod's point that, um, you know the the deeper elements don't really come into play until the second half, and that's fair. But I don't know if that necessarily means the first half is hollow. I mean, I think, I think just on a just as a as a as a genre film alone, the the first half is just so unique and exciting that that I'm okay with I'm I'm okay with spending some time there before we get to the more meat and potato stuff. And if that means that meat and potatoes, it's the second half or the or the last 
quarter or whatever, that's fine because I, I think all that meat and potato stuff still works really well and and delivers what it's supposed to. Um, well, plus, does it deliver? Does it deliver as fully as it could have if they had spent more time? Maybe not, but I, but I still think it works quite well. You know, the other thing is, I, I guess um, that world isn't isn't particularly remarkable to me as well. Mm. I don't. I don't um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to knock the film. I, I, was, I enjoyed it. I'd probably give it like a B, but I found that 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 world, the, the futuristic, you know, this is the setup. I found that to be kind of unremarkable. I was like, this is really familiar. This is Blade Runner on a much, much smaller budget, obviously. Um, there's that one shot when they show the city and it looks like the cityscape of Blade. Of Blade. I was like, like it's direct mm-hmm. to it, but obviously that, it's set in 2040 because things aren't that far advanced because budgetarily, like you, you there's not things that, that make it really seem all that much futuristic. You know what I mean? Like not, right. not many elements to it are, are really that futuristic. Yes. There's a flying motorcycle that yeah, we may have in 40 years too. Or, and then, you know, they put drugs in their eyes. Yeah. People drop LSD. You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. it, was, it wasn't super special and it just, I didn't, not, I, I don't, I don't even mean aesthetically per se, but I just mean sort of hanging around with these junky hitmen who are, who, and he's not exactly the most likable guy for a lot of the movie, for much of the movie. And, but I still found him a kind of interesting guy to hang out with. And I don't know. I, I just, it worked for me in that regard. Just well, the Jack thing. I don't know. It's just that I never really super got engrossed in the beginning of the world. And then it wasn't till. Emily Blunt and her family and that whole story is introduced. That's when the, the movie starts to like um, kind of wake up. And then when we find out this kid, what what he means to this story, that's when, it, you know, and then and that's where it gets really, really interesting because it's like he's going to be, you know, the make or break of the future. You know, like it becomes much more this thematic larger thing and this morality play of like what's going to happen here and, you know what? What's more important, the personal or, or, or you know, or the global? I guess you know what I mean. Because it's like Bruce Willis wants to protect his wife, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the younger man who's not as wise, and starting to realize that you know that the the, the personal doesn't really matter in the end. Has there ever yeah. been? A, has there ever been a movie where the protagonist is at? At once, he turns into the antagonist by the end, but also at the same time, another version of himself is the bad guy too. Like, <laughs> I just got to give Johnson originality points, um, a lot of originality points with this film. Like, you, you, Rod, you made a point. Like, yeah, the cityscape is very reminiscent of Blade Runner, but I also I liked the sort of toned down. It's not too futuristic. Like, there's even that um, really great exchange between Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Jeff Daniels where. He's giving him shit for, um, you know, not being original. Like he's wearing clothes that you could find in movies from the 1900s and all that. Like, I, I, I don't know. I like the way that all fit in. And um, there's a lot yeah. of great, there's a lot of great sequences in the beginning of the film too. Uh, like Paul Dano's older version as he's literally disappearing in one take. That was an incredible scene. Scene I thought, you know, like where yeah, that, yeah, stuff like that. And then the montage of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, getting from 2040 to 2070 like just there's moments like that that um i i was really glad to have in there um even if the end of the film is much better than maybe the the first hour hour and 15 minutes and i like there you know going back to the detail i kind of like the grimy 2040 yeah. like there's a, there's another little detail that i noticed like the cars they're like cars from now but they're kind of like 
really shittily modified with this kind of solar panel junk on it. There's a couple of brief scenes of that. And I just thought, yeah, he's working. Of course, he's working on a smaller budget, so he kind of has to do that. But I don't know. I, I thought it was quirky. I thought it was just kind of interesting and fun. You know, I, I almost preferred it to just seeing another bland, generic, this is set in 2200. So here's, you know, Cloud Atlas uh, takes play, has a big future sequence, future narrative as well. And it's actually the most, it's actually, emotionally, it's the most resonant part of the film, but visually it's actually the most dull because it's just, you've seen that cityscape in 5,000 other movies. Whereas this, whereas this, I think the junk, the sort of kind of in the future, but kind of not, it just, oddly enough, it made it a bit more compelling. I, I'm down with that too. I guess, like, first of all, I guess I want to reiterate, I don't think it's that Blade Runner-ish. Mm, okay. um, <laughs> um, um, like, it's it's not... You know what I mean? It's, but I also just feel like there's a little bit of it that, that that's like put it this way: I prefer the the down and dirty sci-fi world of that not far in the future of District Nine. Wait, much more to this, where mm-hmm. that felt much more um, creative and interesting. And this felt to me, this is all done because of I don't have budget, so I'm writing it like this. That's it. Just stood out like that to me throughout. Hmm. Well, fair enough. So Ryan Johnson is, is a great filmmaker, and he's interesting, and he's going to keep doing cool things. This just didn't particularly work for me. I'm with you, and I feel like this is a great return because actually Brothers Bloom was a film of his that I did not particularly like, but I loved I Yeah, I like, loved I loved Brick, but uh, Brothers Bloom, Disappointment, this one uh, I think is his best film. So I think we can all agree is that he's a guy we're going to be excited to see what he does next and what he's got next on plate because I think we can all – Agree. He, he's he's just a creative voice in Hollywood where there's very few. Um, Absolutely, so yeah. can't can't disagree with that at all. Like I can't agree with it more. He's 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 just gonna keep doing interesting things. I, I don't know if he's gonna, you know. I, I think like his ideas and his concepts are always awesome. I, if anything, this one just doesn't execute as well as maybe it could have. But you know, we're certainly glad to have him. You know, yeah. We need yeah. more Ryan Johnsons making films yeah. in this country. That's for sure. 